scripture reading this morning will be from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. As you find that, you can stand and I will read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm going to read beginning in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. I'll pray. God, we again um, just are grateful to you for all that you are to us in Christ. We thank you for the salvation that you have offered to us so freely, that you would have us simply believe that Jesus died, rose again, that we would have life in his name. And God, we thank you that he is coming again, and for the many portions of scripture that make reference to his return. I pray that you would strengthen and encourage our hearts this morning in the truth that you have not left us as orphans, but that Jesus is preparing a place for us and that he will again soon return. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, we finished up um, with First Timothy, and, and I um, thought I would do just a, a short series on the second coming of Christ. On his return, it is one of the most common um, doctrines in Scripture, um, and yet it's one that we don't talk about now as much as it seems like we did um, a few years back. Um, I want to do some donkey work here, maybe is the best way to call it, before getting into this text. And this is just one of of a number of texts that I want to look at over the next um, few weeks um, that deal with the return of Christ. And I I want from the outset to say that there is a distinction between the essentials of the faith and distinctives that any particular church might believe. The doctrine of the second coming of Christ is an essential, but the timing of that is a distinctive. And so the difference being this church... Um, Bernie Bible Church in the E-Free Church of America, Evangelical Free Church of America, by and large believes that Jesus will first rapture the church, and that rapture will take place before the tribulation. Many other Christians are not of that persuasion. They would say that there is indeed a rapture, but they would disagree on the timing of that rapture. Some would say it would be in the middle of the tribulation. Some would say it's before the wrath of God is poured out, saying the whole tribulation is not the wrath of God. Some talk about a partial rapture, that at different points throughout the tribulation, raptures will take place as the believers on earth overcome. And others say that the tribulation 
will basically come to an end before the rapture takes place called post-tribulational rapture. And so those are all premillennial views. If you believe in a thousand-year literal reign of Christ, then you would also accept a rapture. The only question is, when does it take place? But the timing of the rapture is a distinctive of this church and of many churches. But the doctrine of the second coming is more than a distinctive because it is so, so frequently made mention of in Scripture. Um, even with the communion that we just commemorated today, Jesus says, do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me until I come again. And there is virtually nothing that we can think about in Scripture that does not in some way orient us to the second coming of Christ. So to deny the second coming, to say that Jesus is not going to bodily return to this earth, would put you more in a camp of heresy because it is such a clear, dominant theme of Scripture. Whereas to say that Jesus is going to come before the tribulation or after the tribulation is not an issue of heresy. It's an issue of distinctive, but it is not an essential to our faith. So that's the first thing to, to, to deal with. We're not talking about if we disagree on when Jesus returns, we're not talking about an essential, but merely a distinctive. The doctrine of the second coming is greatly stressed in Scripture. Um, it's been estimated that a full 25% of the New Testament is about the second coming of Christ. So it is, makes it one of the most um, commonly referred to doctrines in all of the New Testament. Um, the doctrine of the rapture, and in particular the pre-tribulational rapture, is a very abused distinctive, a very abused doctrine. Sometimes it results in people saying, we don't need to have any concern for this world. Because after all, Jesus is going to come and take us out of it before it gets really bad. So why even worry? That is an abuse of a good doctrine. It can lead to prayerlessness and to apathy. That is not what God intended. It can even, and it's in its most extreme form, result in people actually taking steps to make the world worse so as to hasten the rapture, voting not for the, for the least evil of our candidates, but voting for the most evil of our candidates. Because after all, it only means that Jesus is going to come all the sooner, and we won't have to die, because we'll just be raptured out. Now, those are extremes. And a doctrine is not good or bad based upon what people do with it. It's good or bad based upon whether it is true to the Word of God or not. Application is often twisted. The doctrine itself needs to be examined to see if it's, is, is this something that truly is grounded in Scripture. It is a misunderstood doctrine, the rapture of the church. It is true, the Scripture says, that evil will increase prior to the second coming of Christ. Scripture is very clear on that. Yet, Scripture does not say that in any particular generation, that that evil is unavoidable or inevitable. In other words, 
revival could take place at any time. And we don't know either when the rapture will take place or when um, his final coming to the earth would take place. We just don't know. We've been waiting for 2,000 years. I don't think it'll be another 2,000. But we could be, I could be wrong. But we do know that even though the scripture says we are moving toward a time prior to the coming of Christ when things will be very, very dark on this earth. That doesn't mean it's going to be now. And it doesn't mean that God is not willing to be patient a little longer. And so we should and we ought to pray that there would be a turning of hearts to the Lord. That in our generation, not praying that we would be raptured, though that is something um, that would be very appealing, but praying that many more would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus and that God would use us in that process. It is true that any repentance and revival that takes place will be short-lived and be limited in scope geographically. That's the way it's always been. There has never been a worldwide revival. Whenever revivals have come, they've been local and they've been for short durations. That doesn't mean we shouldn't still want them to happen and pray for them. Because those that get saved, even though the revival itself may have been short-lived, the consequences are eternal. People are going to spend eternity with the Lord in heaven. So yes, it is an abused doctrine, but so is every other doctrine. Take the doctrine of grace. If we understand it correctly, I believe, the doctrine of grace says that we are totally saved by the work of God in Jesus Christ. And that all that a person needs to do is place his faith in Jesus. There is nothing he needs to do. Just place his faith in Jesus. And Jesus saves you from your sin. And he, saw, he saves you from all of your sin. Because when he died on the cross 2,000 years ago, he died for every sin you would ever commit. Past, present, and future. And so there is no sin that can ever exhaust the grace of God. That is what God's word teaches. Now if we, we can take that good doctrine and abuse it and say, well, if I can't exhaust God's grace, if I can't lose my salvation, then why not just go out and have a good time and sin to your heart's content? Paul speaks to that question and says, may it never be. I believe the author of Hebrews is speaking to that same issue when he says we are trampling underfoot the blood of Christ when we sin simply on the basis that we have been forgiven. We are not understanding, and we are certainly not appreciating and loving the Lord and all that he has done for us when we have that attitude. But that bad attitude and that bad application does not mean the doctrine of the grace of God is a bad doctrine. Any more than a bad response to the second coming of Christ, one that would just be apathetic and prayerless and indifferent, doesn't mean the doctrine of the second coming or the doctrine of the rapture is a bad doctrine. The problem is the application, not the doctrine. Good doctrine can be wrongly applied. 
But good doctrine doesn't produce the bad application. Truth never produces error. But errors can be made in the application of truth. Bad doctrine can even have good results. Good doctrine, wrongly applied. Bad doctrine can also, interestingly enough, have good results. People can say, you have to work your way to heaven, for example. Bad doctrine, heresy, right? Amen? Amen. (laughs) But think about, would you rather live in a society where people are working their way to heaven, or a society that says, I don't even believe there's a God and nothing matters, I'll do whatever I want. We would all choose the legalistic society. Because that bad doctrine still brings people into a, a moral accountability that wouldn't be there if they just live as total pagans in an atheistic society. That doesn't mean the doctrine is good, even though it may have some good results. We believe what we do because of what the Bible says, not because of how it is applied by people. We don't assess truth solely by its results. The results may be due to wrong application, and ultimately, we don't even know the results until we stand before God in heaven, because the story is still being written. For clarity's sake, it's important to understand that when we speak about the doctrine of the second coming of Christ, it is not a single event. This is where the problem typically comes in. And that's why 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and following is important, and also 1 Corinthians 15. Because these are the two passages in Scripture that indicate that prior to Christ setting foot on earth for the second time, that those who know the Lord at his coming will be removed from the earth. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And so there will not be death for those Christians who are alive when Jesus comes again. Before he sets foot on earth, there will be a rapture. I believe that rapture takes place prior to the tribulation. Others place it in different places. But we would all agree as premillennialists, those who believe that Jesus will establish a thousand-year reign and, and that reign will not start until Jesus first returns. All premillennialists believe the rapture is distinct from the second coming. It's only the timing. That is in question. And so what we're saying is the second coming actually comes in two parts. He comes in the air for those who know him. And then he will come to the earth to establish his kingdom. Now some would say, well, where, where do you get that in the Old Testament? Well, the, the Old Testament never mentions the rapture. Though it does speak of the second coming of Christ. So there are many things that are part of progressive revelation that are not fully revealed in the Old Testament. Another great example is the resurrection. The resurrection is also revealed in the Old Testament. But it is not told us in the resurrection, in the Old Testament, that the resurrection takes place in two stages. 
there is first a resurrection of those who died knowing Christ. And then at the end of Christ's thousand-year reign, there is a resurrection for all those who died not knowing Christ. And so the Old Testament only tells us there's a resurrection. It doesn't tell us it's in two parts. In the same way, the Old Testament tells us there is a first and second coming of Christ. It doesn't tell us that second coming occurs in two parts. So when we come to the New Testament, that two parts to the second coming is revealed for the first time. That's why Paul refers to it in 1 Corinthians as a mystery. It is not something that was previously revealed. Probably the biggest objection to a pre-tribulational rapture of the church is that it isn't fair. Right? I mean, really. But the, what is being said about that statement is, I think, a basic misunderstanding. The pre-tribulational rapture view does not say that the generation that gets raptured will not suffer. Every generation of Christian is going to suffer. That is very clear in Scripture. All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We've probably had the least amount of that in North America in the last 50 years of any generation that has ever lived. But that is rapidly changing. Rapidly changing. And so this has been a a short um, hiatus of experience free of persecution in this last 50 years. That has never been known and is probably never going to be repeated. But the point is not that the rapture exempts us from suffering. There is nothing in Scripture that says that. The point is the rapture is exempting us from experiencing the wrath of God on earth. And that is something that, again, all premillennialists agree to. Wherever you place the rapture, they all agree that God is removing you from his wrath. The question then becomes, when does that wrath start? And if you're mid-trib, you believe it doesn't start until the middle of the tribulation. If you're post-trib, you believe that it really starts at the end of the tribulation. And if you're pre-trib, you're saying the whole tribulation is the wrath of God. And so, but all are in agreement, Christians don't experience the wrath of God. And we will be removed from that. And so, it is not true that the rapture should be held or embraced as an escape clause. That if you believe in the rapture, you're saying that you just don't want to suffer and God's keeping you from suffering. The doctrine doesn't say that the generation of the rapture will not suffer. It says they will not go through the tribulation. So it basically is an emotional reaction to the doctrine, not a biblical reaction to the doctrine. Another objection is the rapture puts hope in escape rather than in God. If you're hoping in a rapture, you are not hoping in God. Who wants to go through suffering, and tribulation. Nobody does. Even Jesus, 
when he prays for us in John 17, says, Father, keep them. I'm leaving them in the world. Keep them as even as I have kept them. We should not pray for sufferings. We should pray for God's protection. It is not wrong to want to avoid suffering. It's not wrong to want to be delivered from it. It is wrong to have our hope in escape. Our hope is indeed in God and not in the rapture. There is so much good that comes from the doctrine of the second coming. And in particular, I think from that distinctive of the rapture prior to the tribulation. These are just some of the things that scripture mentions. The good of the doctrine of the second coming. It produces hope. It results in in moral purity in those that are hoping for the soon return of Jesus Christ. How can I spend my life on my own selfish, sinful pleasures if I truly believe Jesus could return at any moment? It should produce and will produce moral purity. Encouragement. He could come soon. That should encourage us. Produce hope, encouragement, perseverance, steadfastness. I don't know if you've ever heard or read the story about, I think his name was Captain um, Shackelford of the Endurance Expedition to Antarctica. Amazing story. I'm waiting till they make a movie out of that one. And that boat was shipwrecked in Antarctica, and the captain took um, a few men with him. I think it was three men, may have been four men with him, and got in a rowboat and tried to make it to the nearest populated island and left all of his men in Antarctica. He left one man in charge that would have had, was senior enough that he should have been on the rowboat going to the other island. But he says, I need you to stay here. And the reason he left him behind was because he was the most optimistic, hopeful man, encouraging man in his entire crew. And he says, you're the guy who can keep these people alive. Because if they lose hope, then they won't be alive even if we make it back. And by pure miracle, they made it to a populated island and made it back. I mean, you should read the story. It's one of those fascinating things that ever happened in history. And then when they got back, they found the entire crew stranded in Antarctica still alive. And when they later interviewed them and says, how did this happen? How did you stay alive? How did you keep from killing each other? And they said, the guy that was left in charge, when he figured out how long it would take to get there and get back, that day on, he says, every day, men, pack up everything you have because this is the day we're leaving. And he would march them from their campground out to the shores to look for that boat to come. And the boat didn't come. And they went back and unpacked and woke up the next morning, pack up, this is the day we live, that we leave. He did that every day. And when they were finally totally out of food and probably could not have lived another day, the ship arrived. And they said it was the hope that kept them alive. The hope of the soon return of what was for them their physical savior. This is a hope and is not a hope that is talked about enough in my estimation. 
when a full 20 to 25% of Scripture speaks about this hope in the New Testament, we don't talk about it enough. Jesus could return at any time. It produces hope, purity, encouragement, perseverance, steadfastness. It also produces a desire and a longing for other people to know Him. Because things are not necessarily going to continue forever as they are now. We know that's not true. One of the best examples that I know in our recent history of how the doctrine of the soon return of Christ, and in particular the rapture of the church, can produce a great evangelistic impact, is back in the 1970s when Hal Lindsey wrote the book, Late Great Planet Earth. And it was put in the grocery stores all across, I know, South Texas. And to this day, I come across people of my generation who say it was that book that God used to bring me to Jesus Christ. I'd never read a Bible. I'd never been to church. But I picked that book up out of the grocery store counter um, going through the line. I saw that book and I bought it. And I realized there is a God and He is coming again and He is coming as judge. And I gave my life to Jesus. It's amazing how many people came to faith through that book. So it does not necessarily negate the evangelistic effort. It can be and should be a stimulus to it. And finally, the scripture says it will produce sobriety, which goes and fits with this, a sober spirit. Anytime he could return. Let's look briefly at this paragraph here in 1 Thessalonians 4. Brethren, we, we often read this, I often have, at funerals. Because it's meant to be an encouragement to those who survive from a, a, the loss of a loved one. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Asleep is a euphemism, a figure of speech for their dead. That you may not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. The Christian should never grieve the loss of another Christian through death as the world does. Because we, as this paragraph says, are going to be together soon. That's, that is the comfort of this passage, the encouragement of this passage. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we do, essential to our faith, even so, just as sure as Jesus died and rose again from the dead, just as sure, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. They are not going to stay in the grave. And we, that is, what a confidence we have. That is not the end of, a, end of the story when a person dies. It's not even close to the end of the story. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive... By the word of God, we say this. We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. So really, these these people are people who believe in the rapture. But they were questioning the resurrection. We get it the other way around, don't we? We don't question the resurrection, but we question the rapture. The Thessalonians was just the opposite. Hey, folks that believe in the rapture, I got something to tell you. Those that don't make the rapture because they've already died, they're going to get there before we do. Don't worry about them. We're all going to be together with the Lord. We shall not precede those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. Verse 16, for the Lord himself 
will descend from heaven with a shout. The Lord himself will descend. Isn't this what, what the angels told the apostles there at, at, in Acts when they saw Jesus ascend? And then the angels are going, why are you standing around looking up into heaven? In the same way that he left, he will return again. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. With the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. Well, what trumpet is that? And then if you're post-tribulational, you go, well, that's the last of the trumpets of the book of Revelation. Problem with that theory is, Revelation hadn't been written yet when Paul says this. He will call it the last trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15. Here it just says the trumpet, and it's the last trumpet for the believer. It's not in anything to do with the trumpets, seals, or bowls of Revelation. Those are different events. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Those who have already died knowing Jesus will rise from the dead immediately prior to the rapture taking place. Dead in Christ. I love that phrase. I have a Southern Baptist pastor who says, based on this verse, all Southern Baptists go to heaven first. Because he says they're all dead in Christ. But we know what he's saying here. It's those who have physically died. He says, don't worry about them. When the rapture takes place, their bodies will be raised from the dead immediately prior to that event. Verse 17. Then, after the physical resurrection of those who have died believing in Jesus, then we who are alive. So what does the we tell you? Paul is expecting to be part of this group. See, that's highly significant here. We who are alive, I'm planning on being part of that. I I remember when Major Ian Thomas used to come to his hill and preach every Thanksgiving. And every year, as as I watch this man get older and older, he's going, I don't know about you folks, but I'm not going by underground, I'm going by air. And he was meaning, I'm going to be raptured. And when you see this guy getting older and older, and, you, and he is going, I believe this is going to take my lifetime. I am not going to die. Man, you know, as a young guy, you're going, hallelujah. You know, you know, this is great. Now, he was wrong. He went by underground. <laughs> but I appreciate the hope and confidence and encouragement that it built into him and built in those around him to live with the expectation that at any moment, we who are alive can be raptured up to be to heaven. That's what Paul's saying. We, speaking of himself, it could take place in our generation. Clearly, he was mistaken. But he was not mistaken to live with that kind of anticipation. He didn't play the fool. That is exactly how God wants us to live. In this day, in this hour, in this moment, could be the time when Jesus would call us to himself. Are you ready? Are you looking forward to that? I used to love, you know, you can talk about this with children, and they'd walk out of here going, let's start looking at clouds. And they do. Our kids used to do that when they were little. We'd drive down the road, and just out of the blue, they'd be looking at these big, white, puffy clouds, and they'd go, Daddy, do you think that's the one? That one what? I'm not even thinking where they're thinking. The one that Jesus could be coming on. And I'm going, why wasn't I thinking of that? Do you ever look at the clouds going, this could be it? And see, Paul's living saying, 
we could be the people. Not even we could be, we will be. Just that confident expectation that Jesus could return at any time. Our counselors are starting camp today. They're scared to death. They're praying for the rapture. (laughs) And it could be. We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Man, how glorious that will be. I remember taking the little inner city boys that I used to work with in Dallas to a movie that was being um, shown in the seminary chapel. And it was on the rapture. And, um, And in this particular movie, the way they depicted it, all these people are just going about their lives, just driving down the street and walking along the roads and stuff. And all of a sudden, they're just, they're just flying up to heaven. Just, whoop, they're all, and they're just going, whoa, 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 as they fly up into heaven. Made a big impression on my little guys. And they're just going, really? Man, they want, that's all they wanted to talk about. And, and they were laughing. They're going, and they didn't, know, they didn't know anything about it. And it was just gave a great opportunity to talk to them about living in the, expect, in the expectation that at any moment... We could join the Lord in the air. How can that not impact the choices that you make and how we live? How can that not produce encouragement, steadfastness, and purity to live in this confident expectation that we could be taken immediately to be with him? And in that, we will always, always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And it is a comfort. Not just a comfort in the loss of someone who has passed on, but also a comfort in the trial that we are going through now. To live as those men stranded in Antarctica lived. This could be the day. This is going to be the day. Pack up and get ready. Now that does not mean we quit our jobs and put on white robes and go sit on the hilltops. That's 2 Thessalonians. Honestly, that's why 2 Thessalonians was written. We live life getting married, having babies, watching the grandkids come, thinking about retirement. All of those things, we live life. All the while, in every stage of life, this could be the day. But we live life. In the expectation, this could be the day that Jesus returns. And I'll make one observation and we're done. As someone else pointed out one time, and it's really stayed with me, there is no tribulation passage in Scripture. No passage of Scripture that mentions the great tribulation that will come upon the entire earth, such as the world has never seen before. None of those tribulation passages mention the church. Not a one of them. Check it out for yourself. Not a single tribulation passage mentions the church. That is one of the reasons we would say we're not going to be here. Suffer? Yes. Go through the tribulation? No. We'll look more at this in the next couple weeks. I'll close this in prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your grace toward us. 
And we know, God, that that grace and goodness is something that we in our sinfulness can greatly abuse. But it doesn't change the fact that you have showered grace upon us in Christ Jesus. And that the salvation that you've offered to us is a free gift. We need only receive it. And I thank you, God, for the truth that Jesus is coming again. And that your word would indicate so strongly that it could be at any moment. Find us ready, expectant, hopeful, even encourage God in a time when there is nothing happening around us or very little that is encouraging. Our strength and our hope are in you, O Lord. Our salvation is yourself. But we do, Lord, know that Jesus is returning and we want to be found faithful and true, waiting and expectant, as so much of your word exhorts us to until that day. Thank you, God, that you remain faithful even when we are faithless. In Jesus' name, amen.